0: Well as you're turning with me to Psalm 85 in your Bible, your Bible app, or in your bulletin, and, and I really would ask that you you keep your eyes on Psalm 85. I'm gonna, we're not only going to read it, but I'm going to refer back to it several times. Um, as you're turning there, I was thinking, This week, and this psalm stirred this thought in me uh, about how easily God's people get discouraged. And maybe for some, oftentimes, it's more like this. Jesus loves me is not how I feel, not today. It doesn't seem real. We know that God loves us, for the Bible tells us so, but sometimes our experience of his love ebbs and flows. It comes and goes. And in Psalm 85, the sons of Korah provide God's people with a prayer to pray when they feel disconnected from God and his heart. So as we're about to read it, I just want to fly over it really quickly so that you see it when we read it together. In verses one through three, God's people are reflecting back, remembering a time when they felt connected to God and they had a fresh experience of his forgiving and gracious heart toward them. But now where they are presently in verses four through seven, God's people are feeling disconnected from the forgiving and gracious heart of God, and they long to once again experience his steadfast love. And so they cry out, revive us again, Lord. But then starting in verse eight, and then through the rest of the Psalm, the sons of Korah give God's people something they can do when God feels distant. Something something that they can hope in. And so, would you stand with me and hear Psalm 85 with me as I read it? Hear the word of the God who loves you. Psalm 85, to the choir master, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Lord, You were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak. For he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet righteousness and peace, kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Lord, we ask that you would help us understand by your spirit how to make this our prayer this morning for our times when we feel like we're disconnected from your heart. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Do it again, Daddy. Do it again. Do it again, Daddy. Do it again. Now, many of you will recognize these words from your own children. I remember back in those days uh, when I'd take one of them and take them by the arms and spin them around and around again in the yard, and then they'd walk away dizzy or put them up on your shoulders and give them piggyback rides or get down on all fours like a horsey and they ride your back around the living room. Uh, All those fun ways that daddies like to play with their kids and their kids say, do it again, daddy, do it again. And that's what I thought of this week as I considered verse 6. Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Do it again, Daddy. Revive us again. There is an experience with God that the children of God wanted to repeat again and again and again. What was it? It was the experience of rejoicing in God even as he rejoiced in them. Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Do it again, Daddy. Do it again. Look again at verses 1 through 3. A little bit of a description of what that experience of understanding God's heart and enjoying God's heart was for them. You see, in verses 1 through 3, God had removed everything that got in the way of his relationship with his people so that it was a relationship of joy much like a father with his child. In verse 1, he had brought them back from captivity. In verse 2, he forgave and covered all their sin. They felt clean. They felt like there was nothing between them. In verse 3, he's not angry. He's turned away his wrath from them. They're they're in fellowship and relationship with their God. They're reflecting back in verses one through three to that time where they experienced God's merciful and gracious heart. And they're longing for that time again because right now that's not how they're feeling. They're in verses four through seven. And they're not feeling that experience with their father. They're longing for it again, but they're not feeling it. Look at verses four and five. They're not currently experiencing the love they knew that God had for them. And we're not sure exactly what caused them to feel this way. It doesn't say, there's no indication uh, in these verses of, of why they feel disconnected from God's love for them, but, but they do. Whatever was going on, they felt like he had turned away from them in anger. And so we have those, those verses four and five Put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? They, they just feel like he's burning hot with anger again. We don't know what it was. Was it their own sin? Possibly. It doesn't say. Was it perhaps how they were interpreting uh, things that were happening in their lives? Perhaps the sins of others against them. Perhaps the way the enemies were Again, attacking and having their way with God's people. Did that mean that God was angry with them again? Perhaps that was it. Were they looking around the kingdom and, and seeing trouble between the tribes? You know, the kingdom divided again. Um, is this a sign that God is not favorable toward them? He's turned his face away. Was the government of the day failing the people so that they they felt like well, where is god's care for us through these leaders we have perhaps he doesn't care for us was there famine in the land again was there a pandemic of disease that had come upon them uh, were they facing some sort of natural disaster that was on the brink of destroying them what what kind of suffering maybe was coming in their lives that they interpreted as God's disfavor with them. We don't know. All we know is this is how they felt. But all of these things could cause God's people to wonder if God had forgotten his promise to love them and to show them that steadfast love for generation after generation after generation. And maybe that's where you are this morning. Maybe your own sin or the sins of others against you or the suffering that someone you love is going through or suffering that you're going through. Maybe something's going on in your life that causes you to wonder whether God still loves you. Causes you to wonder if maybe he's angry with you. you you're not feeling it. You, you know it in your head. Yes, Jesus loves me, this I know, the Bible tells me so, but I don't feel it right now. And it could be my fault, it could be someone else's fault, it could be the way I'm interpreting what's going on in my life. You just don't know why, maybe. Have no clue why. But you know that you don't feel what you once, what you once knew was God's heart for you. The sons of Korah knew that the people of God would experience this. They knew that it's such a normal part of being in relationship with God that they wove into their worship services Psalm 85. So that God's people would would know when they start to feel disconnected from God's love and they're not experiencing the love that they know that God has, they would not say, well, there must be something wrong with me. They would say, oh, well, this must be normal. This must be what happens to humans in relationship with God. Because it is. You've experienced it. But the sons of Korah didn't stop there. They, they helped relieve us of the worry that perhaps something's wrong, that's not normal. But they don't stop there. They, they included help for those of us who get stuck sometimes. Look at verse 8. Verse 8, something shifts here. Let me hear what, the, what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints, but let them not turn back to folly. What the sons of Korah are telling the people of God is this. Let God interpret what's going on in your world and in your heart. Listen God, let me hear what God will speak. Don't let what's going on in your world or your heart interpret God's heart for you. Let God's heart for you interpret what's going on in your world and your heart. I'm going to say that again. Don't let what's going on in your heart or in your world interpret God's heart for you. Listen and let God's heart interpret what's going on in yours and in your world. And then they say, don't turn back to foolish ways of thinking. Don't turn back again to folly. Don't turn back to foolish ways of thinking about God's heart for his people. Let's hear what God the Lord will speak. So helpful, (laughs) so practical for me. And I asked myself as I was studying this, so what words of God would they listen to? If he says, let me hear what the, God, the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his what, what words would they listen to? And as I study, I, I think this is where they would go. Exodus 34, verses 6 through 8. And the reason I think that is because several commentators pointed out that a lot of the words and phrases that the sons of Korah used in this psalm go back to that famous passage in Exodus 34, verses 6 to 8, that all the people of Israel would be very familiar with because it's it was very significant in the life of Israel. We're going to read it in a minute. But in some ways, it was repeated in other places over and over and over again. And it's a place where God talks about his heart. So let's look at Exodus 34, I'm going to start in verse 5, 6 through 8 is where God reminds his people. He reminds Moses just this. Moses is on the mountain. He's about to receive the second version of the tablets of the Ten Commandments. If you'll remember, he and Moses broke the first two because he, after he received them on the mountain and came down, God's people were impatient and they couldn't wait for Moses to come and say what he had heard from God. So they created calves out of gold and started worshiping them and saying, look, Israel, these are the gods who brought you out of Egypt. It's unbelievable, but it's what we do. When we don't hear from God, we start to turn to others. But even after that, even after that rebellion, this is what God says his heart is toward his people. Exodus 34, verse five. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Moses there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed. This is what he said. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands of Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Look, listen to all these phrases that are mentioned in Psalm 85, that God is merciful and gracious. He's abounding in steadfast love, faithfulness, steadfast love for thousands of generations forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. I believe when the sons of Korah are saying, let's hear what God the Lord will speak. He's calling God's people to go back. and hear. When you've lost con- contact with God's heart, then you need to go back and listen to what God says about his heart. And this would be one of the, Key passages. One of the key places where they had heard about the heart of God. I wanted to point out something that I thought was very helpful uh, that uh, Dane Ortland in in uh, Gentle and Lowly pointed out about this passage. Listen to what this passage teaches us about the heart of God. Ortland says, he, God doesn't have His finger on the trigger. It takes much accumulated provoking to draw out his ire. Unlike us, who are often emotional dams ready to break, God can put up with a lot. This is why the Old Testament speaks of God being provoked to anger by his people dozens of times, especially in Deuteronomy and Kings and Jeremiah. This is why the Bible says he's slow to anger. He's provoked to anger, but not once are we told that God is provoked to love or provoked to mercy. His anger requires provocation. His mercy is pent up, ready to gush forth. We tend to think divine anger is pent up, spring-loaded, and that divine mercy is slow to build. It's just the opposite. Divine mercy is ready to burst forth at the slightest prick, Then he goes on to to show again how different that is from us because in Hebrews chapter 10, we are told that we must provoke one another to love and good deeds. We're never told we have to provoke each other to wrath or anger because it's always there under the surface, ready to come out. You just set me off and watch what happens. But we, we humans... Even Christian humans have to be told to provoke one another to love, stir it up. God's love and mercy doesn't have to be provoked and stirred up. It's ready. It's boiling under the surface, ready to burst out on any sinner who will come to him and ask for mercy and grace. But his anger is something that takes a long time to build. It takes a lot to provoke him, to anger. And so this is what the sons of Korah are asking God's people to remember. You know, you, you think God is indignant with you, that he's angry at you again, but you have to remember, remember his heart. Remember what he's shown you in the past. He loves you. He's merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. He loves to forgive sin Yes, He's a God who will hold you accountable, who demands righteousness and who will pour out his wrath. But he told Moses, "I'll do that for four generations, but I love to show my steadfast love for a thousand generations." So again, when when God's people hear this, God is saying, Let what is true about my heart interpret what you see going on in your world, in your heart, not the other way around. And then the rest of Psalm 85 is just a confident response of faith to what God says about himself in his word. I'll read it again. Look at it with me. I'll go back to verse eight. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak for he will speak. Peace to his people, to his saints, but let them not turn back to folly, to foolishly thinking thoughts about God that aren't true. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. And so here's this confident hope in this heart of God steadfast love and faithfulness meet in him, righteousness and peace kiss each other in him. Faithfulness springs up from the ground, and righteousness looks down from the sky. Heaven and earth come together in him. Yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. God wants us to be fruitful and he will make us fruitful. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. We will follow him in righteous living because he loves us and leads us. So when God's people hear again and again and again the story of God's faithful slow to anger, abounding, steadfast love for them. And when they are shown that steadfast love again and again in the temple and the sacrifices that God provided for the forgiveness for their sins, they begin then to interpret their present experiences by God's past love for them and by God's future promise to make all of his attributes of love, faithfulness, righteousness, mercy, truth, steadfast love, all of those attributes to come together and rain down on his people so that they will be fruitful in him. So their answer, the answer to their do it again prayer is from God, hear it again and see it again. I love you. I love you. Hear again my word to you. See again my work for you. I love you. And that means, friends, that Jesus is the ultimate answer to this do-it-again daddy prayer of Psalm 85. Because Jesus is God's word of love for his people wrapped in flesh. Jesus is God's work of love wrapped in flesh for his people. Hear him. Look at him. So what do we do when we feel disconnected from the heart of God? We we pray, do it again, Daddy. Let us hear your love for us again in Jesus. Show us your steadfast love for us in Jesus. And so when you read back through Psalm 85, and I want you to do it with me really quickly. Read back through Psalm 85 through the lens of Jesus. It changes the whole thing. Verses 1 through 3. When you pray this psalm through Jesus, you reflect back on how God brought you out of captivity through Jesus. You remember that all your sin is covered by the blood of Jesus. You rest and know that because of Jesus, God is not angry with you. I had a friend recently say to me after he had sinned and confessed that to me, I'm afraid now God's going to punish me for this. He's, He's angry at me. And I had to remind him of the gospel, Jesus was punished for this sin in your place. Sure, there may be consequences to it, but God's not angry at you. His heart is merciful and gracious. That's his most natural response to a sinner who confesses their sin. Rest and know that because of Jesus, God has turned his hot anger away from you. In verses four and seven, Jesus is the answer to all of the questions and requests in these verses. In verse four, what is the request? Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. The answer is yes, and I will do that once and for all in Jesus. I will restore you, and I will put away my indignation from you now and forever in Jesus. Verse five, will you be angry with us forever, God? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? No. Look at Jesus. I I won't be angry with you forever. I won't prolong it to all generations. Remember, my mercy and grace, my abounding steadfast love goes for a thousand generations. Look at Jesus in verse six. The request is, will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? The resounding answer to that question was, Jesus, yes, I will do that. I will revive you and you will have joy in me again. Verse nine, surely God's salvation is near to us in Jesus Christ. Salvation came near in the flesh. Surely God's glory came to dwell on earth in us, with us, through Jesus. Where do steadfast love and faithfulness embrace? Where do righteousness and and peace kiss? In the person of Jesus. In him, steadfast love, faithfulness, righteousness, and peace all love one another and are bound up in him and in his heart. Verses 11 to 13, where will we see the promise of God raining down righteousness and growing a crop of faithfulness? That's what this language in these verses is trying to show us. It's a picture of God raining down grace and a crop of fruitfulness comes up. Where will we see that happen? It happens in Jesus and in the people that he renews to live and love like him. He is the vine. We are the the branches. And he said if we will abide in his love, then we will bear the fruit of that love in our relationships with others. And I'll let you look through the rest of the verses and figure out how Jesus is the answer to them. We won't spend that time this morning. But Jesus makes us able to pray this prayer and say to our Father, do it again, Daddy. Revive us again. Please let us know the love that you have for us. Let us not just know it, but let us experience it in Christ. When our kids were a little bitty, and, and I used to play all those little games with them, there was one in particular uh, that we loved, and I, I think that it was passed on to me by, by my mom, but it was uh, the Ride the Horsey game. And so the way this would work is, I would sit in a chair or on the sofa and uh, put them on my lap facing me, and I would start to bounce them on my my knees, and I'd say, ride the horsey, go to town, take care of Abby, don't fall down. Anybody play that one with your kids? And so you ride the horsey, go to town, take care of Abby, don't fall, and then you pull your knees apart, and they fall through the crack, but you grab them. And keep them from falling down. And they laugh and giggle right after their eyes got really big, like, I'm going to die. Um, you just do that. And sometimes you fake them out, and you don't separate the knees and let them fall. You just keep them guessing and wondering. And they would love that. Do it again, Daddy. Do it again. Do it again until I was exhausted. I can't do this anymore, child. Um, and you might think about this, this game and think, this is kind of weird. Uh, isn't that kind of cruel? Aren't you you teaching them that their father is capricious? Uh, That they should be worried that he's going to drop them at any moment? Isn't, Isn't that what you're training your children to believe? And isn't that what we sometimes wonder about what our heavenly father is doing with us? He's just playing games with us. We never know when he might let us fall through his lap and get hurt. All the while, he's laughing at our wide-eyed panic. Is that what I'm teaching my children in that game? I mean, the truth is, sometimes you're going to fall. And when you do, sometimes it's going to feel like there's nothing solid to hold you up. That everything you've rested on is going to fall out from under you and you're going to get hurt. And that's the way life is. Sometimes we fall because of something done by us. Sometimes we fall because of something done to us. Sometimes we fall because we live in a fallen world, a, a world where the suffering that's common to everyone pulls what we depend on out from under us. But the point of that little children's game is not to teach little children that their father will sometimes let them fall, although sometimes he will. The point of the little game is to let those children know and experience and remember that though they fall, their father will always hold them. So, child of God, because of Jesus, you can know that when you fall, Jesus said, I know my sheep. No one can snatch them out of my hand. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. And because of Jesus, we can say to our father, do it again. Do it again. Revive us again. Show us again in Jesus that you will hold us when all else fails and falls out from under us. Revive our trust in you again, Father. Turn our hearts again to your good and gracious heart. Do it again, Father. Do it again. Revive us, restore us, turn us back to your heart. And so we come to worship again and again, week after week. And we say, let me hear what God the Lord will speak. And we hear in the gospel what God will say to us that all of the steadfast love and faithfulness and righteousness and peace of God for us embraces with a, with a kiss in Jesus. We not only hear what God will speak to us in the gospel, we see him answer the prayer, show us your steadfast love, O Lord, And we see him answer it in this table. Week after week, again and again, we come to listen to his love for us in the gospel and to look at his love for us in this table. Do it again, Father. Do it again, Father. Do it again. Show us again. Tell us again. Show us that you'll hold us. Show us that you'll hold us. And guess what? Unlike me, He never gets tired of doing it. Father, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for this table. Uh, Thank you for being willing in your word and in your work um, to respond to our do it again. Week after week, day after day. Because of Jesus, when we're disconnected, we can know that you have not disconnected your heart from us, that it's there, that you're holding us, even when we can't hold on to you. Thank you for this. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Amen.